0: Kia ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the
1: UK and New Zealand. Kia ora. My name is Dr Kate Calcott, and I'm the Senior Science and Innovation Officer at the British High Commission in Wellington. Today I'm talking to Dr Emma Vance who's a professor in planetary plasma physics, or also likes to be known as a planetary scientist. What does that mean, being a planetary scientist? Okay, so planetary scientist refers to the research part of my
0: job that I do at the University of Leicester in the UK. Um, And so my research is into other planets in the solar system. So I don't actually work on studying our planet, but I do work on other planets in the solar system, like Jupiter, Saturn and also Mercury.
1: We are hosting you here today because it is coming up to the 12th of November, which is 250 years since the last transit of Mercury across the Sun. And you are taking part in a astronomy roadshow called Te Mahutatanga o takero, or Mercury Rising. What are you presenting on and, and where are we going? The reason for my visit here is to be part of
0: this amazing speaking tour that Ian Griffin has organised um, from the Otago Museum. And so we're doing a lecture series tour across New Zealand, visiting uh, many of the cities, and finishing that lecture series in Fitianga where we're going to be observing the Mercury transit of the Sun. And that's a really beautiful astronomical event that hopefully the, the, the skies will be clear and we'll be able to use um, solar telescopes uh, to have a look at the transit of Mercury, which will have al- already started um, as the sun rises around 6am on, on the transit day. So, so we're looking forward to that aspect. But in the meantime, we're travelling across New Zealand and giving public outreach Talks around astrophysics work being done in New Zealand, around exoplanet research, and I'm here to talk about Mercury and my research on
1: Mercury. Wonderful. I'm interested to know a bit about how you actually got into planetary science. Can you tell me about how you got into your field?
0: So, how I got into my field from undergraduate study, I I was always interested in space and went to university to study physics with space science and technology. Uh, which was a a degree which covered core physics, as that was the sort of subject that I knew that I wanted to do, uh, and obviously mathematics as well. But the space science and technology aspect of that meant that I specialised um, some of my courses in things like planetary science and space sciences, and learning also about the kind of instrumentation that you use either here on Earth looking out into the cosmos, or actually instrumentation that you can put onto robotic spacecraft and send to other planets and I think by the time that I got towards the end of my degree I'd done a couple of long projects I was doing a four year degree and did a couple of long projects around planetary science and i and I sort of decided that was my aim if you like i'd always had a long ambition to do that but but I, the degree kind of really focused my mind into applying for PhDs uh, after my undergraduate study. And so I sort of entered the field at that point. And then actually I've stayed pretty much in the same field um, up until quite recently, where the the Mercury work that I'm doing is a little bit more of a a, a different type of uh, research uh, in more recent years.
1: In my role, I, I often find that careers in science are driven by people's passion towards their subject, What is it that inspired you in the first place to get interested in in planetary science?
0: So I think this goes back quite a long way for me. Actually, I can remember even as a young child being very interested in looking up at the sky. I always wanted a telescope. Um, So even from the age of about eight or nine, I was thinking about, space and I was always looking at the moon when you could see it and when it wasn't cloudy in the UK and looking out and and wondering what was out there I was always sort of inquisitive about about the sky and I think a lot of children are actually but as I got older that sort of developed into an interest in science and maths at school I generally liked school and being educated that was uh, I was a a bit of a nerd, (laughs) and I'm proud of that. But when I got to about 14, a sort of very specific event happened, which was that the uh, NASA Voyager spacecraft was on its mission to go past multiple planets in the solar system. And it was launched in the 1970s, but by the time I was about 14, it was 1989, and it was the year of the flyby of Neptune uh, by the Voyager spacecraft. And so one of the programs that I love watching, which was all about science, was called uh, Horizon. It was a BBC program. And um, they had the Horizon program that was all about this Neptune flyby. And so that was the first time that we'd actually seen what Neptune really looked like. The telescopes here on Earth couldn't really give any detail about features in the atmosphere. And so we sort of knew it as this sort of fuzzy blue blob in the sky. But then once the spacecraft got there, we had... Views of um, you know close-up views of the atmosphere and the details, and also um, the moons of, of Neptune as well. And so this program really kind of changed my my view of, of of the fact that you could actually get a job doing that work. And I watched scientists, probably at the JPL the Jet Propulsion Lab in in Pasadena, the NASA facility, actually seeing that data coming back for the first time and how excited they were to see those images that nobody else on the planet had ever seen and I remember watching that and just thinking this is amazing this is actually a job and so I wrote to NASA and said I'd really like to do this job what do I need to do and they actually wrote back to me and sent me lots of information and I'm not going to underestimate what an effect that had on me actually being communicated with NASA at age 14 had a significant impact on me and that kind of set me on my path and I felt quite determined at that stage to try and aim for uh, working in that, well it's quite an ambitious aim but to, to aim for working in that field so it's kind of nice that I actually do that for a job now so uh, but yeah that was my, my inspiration.
1: So you did your PhD in the magnetosphere of Jupiter and then your postdoctoral study in Saturn's magnetosphere. Can you explain what a magnetosphere is? A magnetosphere is a protective bubble in space. It's
0: an extension of the environment of a planet and specifically the extension of the environment of a planet that has its own magnetic field. So the Earth has its own magnetic field, which is generated deep within the core, and that magnetic field extends into the environment way above our heads, above the atmosphere and out into space. And then what happens is that the sun also has its own magnetic field, and that magnetic field extends out into the solar system. And... We also have something called the solar wind, which is the upper layers of the sun's atmosphere, which is so hot they actually blow out into space and charged particles move through the solar system. And we call that the solar wind. Uh, And so the solar wind and the sun's magnetic field actually interact with each planet's magnetic field. And that forms this sort of cavity in space, which is compressing, the planet's field on one side and stretching it out into a long comet-like tail on on the on the uh, far side and so those magnetospheres are as i say really an extension of our close environment which we which we study and so jupiter and saturn also have their own magnetic fields jupiter's is the strongest magnetic field in the solar system and so they have giant magnetospheres And those planets are rotating rapidly in about 10 hours. And so they're sort of rapidly rotating uh, magnetic environments, quite different to the one that that we're living in right now.
1: Are you working on quite a similar area now? Yes, I've been working
0: on Saturn for many years and I did my PhD work on on Jupiter and its magnetosphere, as, as you mentioned already. But more recently, my work has sort of moved towards Mercury Um, because of the instrument that we that we've built at the University of Leicester and it's the only UK instrument that's on a new mission going to Mercury called BepiColombo and that mission is a a joint venture between the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency and that instrument is specifically to actually look at and image the surface of Mercury so really something quite different for me and, and I'm leading that instrument and the science team so That's something a little bit new, but there is actually a link as well to the magnetosphere of Mercury in that we can use that instrument um, to look at charged particles that are actually bombarding the surface of Mercury um, and producing x-rays that our instrument will measure. So there is still a link to the magnetosphere side of my work, but I've also sort of stepped into um, a new field, which has been been really rewarding, I have to say.
1: What does it take to get to the point of launching instrumentation towards an, a planet in our solar system? It takes
0: a huge amount of work. So, our instrument was accepted on the payload for this mission that launched just over a year ago. That was accepted onto the payload in about 2005. So, since that time, that instrument has been designed and developed and prototypes have been built and tested and so the engineering and technical team at the university in particular with international partners providing um, aspects of the instrument have worked for maybe 14 or 15 years to build one instrument and the reason it takes so long is because it's really highly specialised engineering work it has to be The instruments have to be qualified for space flight. They have to go on a very large rocket and be shaken vigorously as it's launched into space. And we have to make sure that our instrument is going to survive all of that and also survive the environment when it gets to Mercury. So it's a very challenging engineering project. And and so it takes a huge amount of, of time an effort to get it absolutely right. And of course, it's not something that you can fix once it's been launched. It's when it's gone, it's gone. So the testing regime that takes place before you launch um, your spacecraft with an instrument on board is 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 very uh, rigorous.
1: I'm interested in chatting a little bit more about your experience um, in your career to date. I'm aware that physics is one of the the science areas that is quite limited in the number of female professors. How has your experience been, been in your area, mm. and has it been challenging for you?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think as an undergraduate, first starting out on my journey into physics, um, I can remember there were 110 of us in the year, and only eight women. And I thought, gosh, that's not very many. That's not a very good percentage uh, that, that, that are female now if you look at our numbers we have about a third of our undergraduates in a given year are women and that's a pretty consistent percentage year on year on year so it's not it's not balanced but it's better than it was so that that's encouraging and showing that actually what it shows you is that if if women do the advanced physics courses they're more likely to continue it to degree and so so one of the challenges is actually Encouraging women to take physics to the to the highest level before university, and then they're more likely to go on and study it at university. But then as you progress through, you see the numbers drop off. So in our research group, if you look at the constituency of our research group, we're about 50-50 men and women, which is fantastic. There's about 50 of us in the group. So that's really great. That tells us that postgraduates and postdoctoral um, staff are just as likely to be to be women as they are to be men so that's we have some balance there but then we go off a cliff when you get to the academic staff and in our particular department we have about four women who are on the teaching staff and I'm the only professor and when I was a student there was only one female lecturer so it's interesting and it's very challenging to know how we quickly can change um, that statistic but um, what you see is that the the higher up you go in terms of the level of, of the person working in, in academia, at least, the numbers decrease. And that's been a problem for many years and I think is improving, but it takes a lot of time to, to really change those statistics.
1: From your perspective, how could we get more women involved in science, technology, engineering, mathematics or STEM? This is the big question.
0: Um, I think... First of all I think as as perhaps I've already alluded to I think we need to work really hard with young teenagers so there's a sort of young kids are really interested in science no matter who they are I think you talk to a a small child and you talk to them about space it's such a great thing to use um, to infuse people and I think you see that lots of kids are interested in science but then something happens around 13, 14, 15 I think where Maybe it's not so cool to be interested in science, or I don't know, but the numbers seem to fall away, and I think that's where we have the problem that that women aren't taking physics, specifically physics actually the the numbers for biology and chemistry have significantly improved in this at this point. they don't take it to the advanced level which they then would require in order to go to university and study it. so I think that's an important point. I also think generally speaking we do things if we can imagine ourselves doing it you know we you know if you want to be a scientist you need to be able to picture yourself doing it and the best way to do that is to see role models so i think i think role models are actually really important and it's taken me quite a while in my career to get to the point where i realized that that actually i am now a role model and i and i do take that seriously i it didn't dawn on me for quite some time that that that's where i was but actually I I do notice that the the female students, uh, undergraduates, do very much gravitate towards me to to talk to about what they want to do in the future. So it's important that they see themselves um, in in the things that they're uh, aspiring to do. And I would also say that I think, generally speaking, what we need is a more diverse workforce in general, and and that goes far beyond gender. And I think that we now all recognise this. We need to make sure... That all minority groups are represented in the sciences. I mean, we simply aren't tapping into the talent that exists if we don't welcome everybody uh, into the subject. And I think we need to work uh, harder um, um, in that area generally. And I and I do I do see that happening. So I I feel
1: positive about that. But again, it's it takes a while for change to occur. I very much agree, and I've seen. The, the push, it, both in the UK government and the New Zealand government, for increasing diversity in science. And it's a very po- positive thing, and we're so glad to have you here because you are a leading female in such a challenging space. So uh, hopefully you inspire a few people along the way. Yeah, thank you. You were elected to the role of president uh, of the Royal Astronomical Society in the UK, which you officially take up in 2020. You will be the fourth female president out of 92 past presidents. What does this role mean to you, and what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, well, it means a great deal to
0: me. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic to have been elected to that role in the first place. Um, The RES is a uh, 200-year-old society serving 4,500 fellows at the current time, and many of those fellows are in the academic community. Many of those fellows are international, so it's it's a big role. And I think just to go back to what we were talking about before, I hope that um, by being the fourth female president, especially in the bicentenary year next year, is a very positive thing for females in the field aspiring to to continue their career in science. So I I hope that part of part of what I can achieve is is to is to connect well with the community that that I am serving. Also, I think it's a really great opportunity to be involved in slightly different things than I have currently been doing. So I've very much been focused on my research and my teaching at university. And so this role gives me an opportunity to really get involved in um, discussing science policy with government. um, And we, we do a lot of that work at the RAS. And so um, that's a really great opportunity for me to, to learn more about how you can effectively do that and take the messages from our community that would like to be delivered to government to make sure that we, we give the input that, that can help government to um, see how funding can be distributed and, and what the important things
1: are to remember for, for our field. So um, that's part of what I would like to do. As someone that's actively working in the science policy interface... I'm really pleased to hear that because that's what inspires me to do what I do is how do you connect the government and and the policy that defines and shapes research funding and and to help direct the impact that those science communities actually lead on. So I'm really keen to see how you get on in that role. Finally, uh, we like to ask our guests on the podcast if there's anything that scares you or makes you nervous. (laughs) that's a
0: great question I think uh, if you'd asked me that a few years ago it would have definitely been around public speaking I actually uh, very nearly didn't do a PhD because I could not imagine myself standing up in front of an international community at a conference and presenting my work I'm I'm being serious I actually thought I maybe shouldn't do a PhD because I'm not sure that I can do that and now I find myself on a speaking tour in New Zealand and I find this just really amusing in many ways but I feel like that's a good example of how you can really overcome your fears if you're determined to and I put a lot of work and effort into overcoming that particular fear Uh, and I'm not ashamed to say that because I think lots of people have fears around that particular topic Um, I worked really hard and I took every opportunity to speak uh, in order to improve that particular area Right now, though, I think I would say, so that really doesn't bother me anymore. I think the, most, the thing that scares me the most is having so much to do that I don't feel prepared for any particular thing as well as I would like to. And I think a lot of people can relate to that as well. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we, we just have to do our best and we, you know, we prioritise the most important things and we just do what we can do um, and give your best and by definition, that's, that's the only thing that you can do.
1: Karaway. Namahineui Emma, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. If
0: you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with a High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakitiano.